today, so again, today's Torah tea is the portion of Shemini. Now, Shemini means what? Means eight. Now, let's look first in the Parsha. The name of this Sedra is Shemini. What is the meaning of the word? How does it called Shemini? So let's see verse 1, Aleph, in the Parsha. It says, Vayihi Bayom HaShemini. And it came to pass on the eighth day. Now, if you want to... cut off, Rabbi. We can't read the top. Here, it's cut off? Yeah. Uh, Are you... Do do you see the name of the Sedra Shemini? So we're not in the right place. Hold on. So, what does the Pasuk say? Vayihi Bayom HaShemini. It was on the eighth day. What are we talking about over here? The eighth day. There were seven days before. And I find this very uh, telling because we actually came now from the eighth day of Pesach. Right? Mm -hmm. Because Mm -hmm. you have seven days and then plus the eighth day. The eighth day is... um, that's the Achron Shel Pesach. The last day of Pesach is basically the eighth day of Pesach. And we're talking about dedicating the learning. I also want to mention that on the eighth day of Pesach, which is Achron Shel Pesach, is also the yard site of my mother of blessed memory. Uh, it was her 11th, she passed away 11 years ago. And um, during the eighth day of Pesach, was uh, her yard site. Uh, she um, she um, you know lit the candles on the night of the eighth day of Pesach, and she went to sleep, and then she never got up in the morning. So she passed away on the eighth day of Pesach. Now, the eighth day of Pesach, as you're going to see, here we're talking about Yom HaShmini, and we'll see how this connects very well. But the eighth day of Pesach is also known as the day of Mashiach. Uh, The Haftorah that we read is all about when Mashiach will come, the world will be a place of justice, it'll be a world of perfection, the... All mankind, that's where we read about the wolf and the sheep will live together. They will they, they, they will cut the plowsheds into uh, the source, into plowsheds. All those beautiful verses come from the Haftorah that we read on the eighth day of Pesach, Achron Shel Pesach. And I find it very... Um, Interesting, because as you know, uh, the Rebbe, one of the big things that he tried to uh, bring into the world and have the people recognize is to anticipate the coming of Mashiach. This was one of the things that the Rebbe pushed very hard. Matter of fact, uh, there was a talk that the Rebbe gave 
would, would be just a few days from now, in which uh, the Rebbe was sort of uh, talking with some disappointment that he pushed so hard to try and bring Mashiach, and he hasn't succeeded. He sort of said that all of my work and all of my efforts have not really produced the results that that he wanted. And the Rebbe sort of said that now he's giving it over to the Hasidim, to the pe- people, to the followers, that they should try and do what they are able to in order to bring Mashiach. Uh, the Rebbe basically said, I did what I could, I pushed and I pushed, and I have not succeeded, basically. That's what the Rebbe said. So now the Rebbe says, it's your turn. You have to see to it, to figure out and try to uh, consult with each other what more and what needs to be done in order to bring actually Mashiach into this world. Uh, That all has to do with the eighth day of Pesach, that has to do with the Achrish of Pesach, because that's the Mashiach, and it's actually a tradition to have a meal for Mashiach. Uh, normally, on Shabbat, we have three meals, but on Yom Tov, we only have two meals. I mean, we could have as many meals as you want. We're talking about mandatory. On Yom Tov, there's only two meals. But when it comes to Pesach, on the last day of Pesach, we have a third meal. And that meal we call the Sudas Mashiach, the meal of Mashiach. And I find it very telling that my uh, mother of blessed memory, uh, she went through a lot, you know, we don't, she went through a whole lot. You know, they were um, in the former Soviet Union, and that was, you know, when Stalin, uh, after the revolution, but then later on when Stalin came, to power, it became intolerable for all citizens, but especially for the Jewish people that were uh, religious. They were really having a very difficult time. And yet, you know, which, uh, which, which um, surprisingly, how did these people stay strong in their faith in believing in Hashem, in Torah, in Mashiach, in all the traditions, the Jewish traditions, it seems like they would be justified to have a complaint to Hashem why Hashem put them through all these trials and all these tribulations, and yet they never gave up their um, their faith, and they never gave up their uh, belief, uh, they continued, and my mother especially uh, was a very, very pious woman, like she would say, she would pray three times a day, she would say her tillim, her psalms, she would say every day, uh, and she was, uh, you know, a very uh, uh, God-fearing uh, person, and uh but especially, she, she had the complete faith that Mashiach is coming, that Mashiach will come. And she had it so strong, 
and she wouldn't waver. And a lot of times I wonder, where did these people get that strength to continue? And what, what I think it is, or certainly what helped it, was the sense of community and together. When they lived in the group that they lived with the other Hasidim, with the other Jewish people, they lived with a uh, full heart of love for each other. They really cared about each other. It was, I think, their uh, camaraderie, their togetherness, their doing. They cared for each other genuinely, and somebody else's joy, simcha, was their simcha. Somebody else's uh, sad, uh, unfortunate circumstance really touched them. It was theirs. It was a sense, I think, of community that stabilized them, that was they were able to, notwithstanding their personal challenges, but they drew uh, strength from each other. They sort of held on to each other, and that's how they came out fully believing and religious and doing what all together, because there was that sense of community, you know, especially, you know, my mother grew up in a little town in Ukraine, which is called Karlevitz, that's the name of it. Her great-grandfather was the rabbi of that city. He was a uh, renowned, a world-renowned scholar, and he was the rabbi of the city. He was an author of many, many sephorim, many books. And they lived in that community, but in the community they were all together. You know, there was the, whatever the families that lived there, the Jewish community, they were like one family was like a kibbutz or something like that. It was, and that gave them the strength. And um, you know, in the little shtetl, it was easy to be together because, in a sense, people needed each other because nobody was independently wealthy and people could not really afford outside help, so if somebody made a bris, so the whole town would cook, and everybody, and so on, everybody would do for each other, it was, it was a community event, everything, whatever they needed done, people needed each other, people interacted with each other, it was part of their life, because I guess they needed each other. They really needed each other on a day-to-day basis. And that gave them a sense of care, responsibility, friendship, and um, gave them strength to go through things together because they were together in that way. But, you know, Baruch Hashem, when we live in a time, in an era where... uh, Jewish life and the uh, the circumstances are such that we're much more affluent, that people uh, can afford to make their own bris and people can afford to do their own thing. 
people don't need each other so more so so much because instead of having to ask your neighbor to help you cook for the bris you pay a caterer and they just bring the whole bris in and done for you so people became distant people moved away from each other because they didn't need each other anymore so I really sensed in my mother's generation, I sensed that level of closeness, how they felt to each other. But I, going back to, this was the Bayom HaShmini. She passed away on the eighth day of Pesach. This ties into what we want to discuss today over here. In the Parsha, it also talks about Yom HaShmini. What is this eighth day over here? Shmini, by Pesach, we're saying that's the eighth day of Pesach. Because you have first come the first seven days of Pesach, and then comes the eighth day of Pesach. But what is the Yom HaShmini talking about over here? Over here, we're talking about the inauguration of the Temple. In the previous Parsha, in the section of Tzav, the previous Sedra, over there we talk about the seven days before the eighth day. We talk about the seven days of inauguration. Those were the days that Moshe Rabbeinu was training the Kohanim, which is Aaron and his sons, how to do the work in the temple. So here the Pasuk says, and then finally, when it came on the eighth day, after seven days of training, Vayihi Bayom Hashmini, and it was on the eighth day. So Moshe calls to Aaron and his sons and to the elders of Israel. Okay, that's why it's called Shemini, but if you just look at the heading of the Parsha, if somebody asks you, what's this week's Parsha? What's the answer? Shmini. Shmini. You don't say it's Shmini of inauguration. You just say Shmini. Shmini means eighth. It's the eighth. What is the number eight represent? So we're going to talk a little bit about what does the number eight represent. So, the number seven, that represents creation. We all know that God created the world in six days, and he rested on the seventh day. Creation, the world that Hashem created, Hashem created a world which is within nature. The world runs and behaves in a natural way. So the number seven represents nature, the usual. The number eight represents one above nature, which is the level which is beyond the limitation of the nature. We need to understand that God creates everything. He creates nature, and He can also create miracles above nature. It all comes from Hashem. But one expression of Hashem 
comes in nature, and one expression of Hashem comes in above nature. In nature, things are not obvious that they come from Hashem. Why? Since what is nature means, nature means that these things keep on repeating itself. So if you don't look closely and you don't figure out, you may think, well, the world is running in a natural way. It's its natural course, course going. And you don't see that Hashem is actually the one that is orchestrating, that he is the one that is leading and doing everything that's going on in the world. That's the idea of nature. Nature is godly, it's Hashem, but it's not obviously Hashem. But then when you see a miracle happen, so you see like the splitting of the sea. The sea is running and all of a sudden, the sea splits, the Jews go in, come back out of the other, make a U-turn, come back out, and the Egyptians go in, and then the water covers them, they all drown, and the Jews are all saved. So that's a obvious realization. We can obviously see that's the above nature. So seven is nature, eight is above nature. But yet, we call it eight. Eight means that there is seven before. It's not just above nature, but it's connected that the above nature works into nature. It's connected to nature. Why? Because eight is connected to seven. It's not a number all by itself. It's not 10, it's 8. 8 comes after 7. And this is actually what, what's going to take place in the times of Mashiach. Now the world is nature, we see it nature. But in the times of Mashiach, when the world will reach a higher level, we will see within the nature we'll see godliness. It says like the harp normally has seven strands, but it says that the harp in the days of Mashiach will consist of eight strands. That means one more strand. It's the same idea as we say seven and eight. Seven is the nature, that's the world now. When Mashiach comes, it's going to be eight strands. What does that mean? What does that mean? So that means that the revelation, the way we will experience the world, we won't experience the concealment. We won't experience the nature, but rather over there in the time of Mashiach we will see 
Hashem's hand in everything. As we've spoken many times that it's almost like a game of hide and go seek. That's the way it's now, which means that nature, Hashem is hidden in it. Because it happens all the time, Hashem is hidden. So you have to seek and you have to find Hashem in nature. But when we will merit the coming of Mashiach, then it'll be the number eight, which means there will be no more hiding. Everybody will see everything in the world that'll happen. We will be able to tell and say, well, this comes from Hashem. It's not going to be hiding and seeking, but rather it's going to be openly Hashem. Now, how is this going to be openly Hashem? It's not like nature is going to go away and it's going to be miraculous. So the manna is going to fall down from the heaven and we're going to experience miracles all the time. No. But what it means is that within our regular daily life, we won't have to struggle to find Hashem. In our regular daily life, can you imagine if today we, 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 if we can understand why things are happening and we see natural things, if we can, uh, rational explanation, if we can see that Hashem runs the world, everything is happening according to a plan that we can perceive, then we would all follow Hashem, there would be no question because everything would be open. But because it's nature, because it's hidden, so now we're not sure. So we have challenges. We have people, God forbid, getting sick. We have people that we don't understand, you know, suffering. And we don't understand why they're suffering. So it looks like nature, you know, arbitrarily, you know, just, you know, somebody, it's not like that there is a system in place and there is an, uh, an accounting and, and a reason and a rationale. So that's the confusion if you just leave it to nature. But imagine if you had the vision and the understanding to comprehend and see, look, this is why Hashem is doing this and this is why Hashem is doing that. If you can see behind the curtain and you can see Hashem's hand, then there would be very easy. That's going to happen. In the time of Mashiach, we're going to see things much more clearly. What now is confusing, it's blocked. Our vision is, isn't clear. And we, we hesitate and we question and we aren't sure. And, you know, we have all different kinds of, of issues that we have to deal with. It is all because we're living in the time of nature. But it says that notwithstanding the fact that we're living in the, this kind of a world, yet look how many people 
are clinging to the Jewish faith. Look how many people are doing mitzvot. Look how many people care about each other. Look how many people believe in Mashiach. Look how many people believe in Hashem. Look how many people are studying Torah. Look how many people are doing... And it's not a surprise why some people don't. It's maybe a bigger question, how come some people do? You know, with all of the problems that we have, and with all of the unanswered questions that we have, how come they're sticking it out? That's called misirat nefesh. That's self-sacrifice. People are clinging to Hashem, to the Torah, and the mitzvahs beyond the reason, beyond the rationale, beyond the intellect. That's called misirat nefesh, a devotion to Hashem which is very deeply rooted. It is that devotion to Hashem during the time of challenges. You see, when things go well for you, and things are good, and then you choose to be helpful to someone else, that's not such a big deal. If you choose to share and uh, with your uh, somebody who is less fortunate, you share finances with them, you give them a, you help them out financially, or if you share with someone when you feel very good, you feel very good about yourself, you feel very strong, and you feel empowered, and then you feel that you want to help somebody, you want to do something a kind, you want to be kind to them, you want to say a good word to them, you want to uplift them, you want to do something good for them. When you're feeling good, that's easy. The question is, when things are not so easy for you, when you're not feeling so well, you happen to be down yourself, you happen to be depressed, you happen to be in a bad mood, you happen to be dealing with your own trauma, with your own uh, pain, with your own disappointments in, 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 in life, in various different areas, how can you at that point find in your heart in your mind, to be there for another person, to encourage and help them. That's the difficult part. So, in the time of Galut, when we are dark, and when we don't see, and when we are blocked, we don't see Hashem, over there, it takes a deeper self-sacrifice and dedication to stay connected to Hashem. It is that specific mesirat nefesh, that self-sacrifice, which merits us the great light that will come with Mashiach, that things will be open. Because ultimately, the purpose of the galut, the purpose of the hardships, the purpose of the challenges is not for the challenge, is for us to go beyond and not allow for those challenges to put us down, 
not allow for those difficulties to make us into selfish people that we're only going to think about ourselves. I don't have enough of myself. How could I think about another person when I am hurting myself? No. If you have Mesirat Nefesh, that means even when you are having hard times, even when you're challenged, your own faith is challenged, and yet you stand strong and you find it within yourself, the Mesirat Nefesh, to not only strengthen yourself, but strengthen your neighbor, strengthen your acquaintance, be there for other people. That's when it is so meaningful, because ultimately, that is what Hashem wants. The, the goal is to find Hashem, and we find Him in the Galut. That means our challenge, our difficulty, is the actual vehicle for the redemption to bring us to the other side. And I, as I said before, as I look at my mother's generation, my mother, my father, and those generations, and those people who had real problems, you know, everybody thinks that they have real problems. But, and it may be true, but everything is relative. You know, when a person has a problem that he doesn't have food literally and the kids go hungry at night and doesn't have food to feed them, that's a more acute problem than say that somebody who desires a, uh, a newer model car or a newer model iPhone and can't afford it. You know, they're both feeling bad. You know, everybody would like to have uh, something, but... The Rebbe once explained, it says in the Talmud, it says that a person, at the time that they pass on from this world, has only reached 50%, half of what they really wanted for themselves. So the Rebbe explained why 50%. So the Rebbe says that this comes very simple because the Talmud says one who has $200 wants $400. If one has $400, he wants $800. And if he has $800, he wants $60. In other words, basically, a person always wants double what he has. So it turns out it doesn't matter how much you have. As <laughs> much as you have, when you're going to be passing from this world you're still going to be only 50% where you are. You're only going to be 50% because you're always going to want double. So, might as well, since you're anyways going to make 50%, so who cares really? It doesn't really make that much of a of a difference. It's going to be 50%. I know, it's a difference. 50% of $10 million is not the same as 50% of a thousand dollars, but the point here is that in the times when we feel challenged and we want to actually help ourselves and we want to make ourselves successful, take away some of our own pain, some of our own difficulties. How do we do that? 
So if you're going to sit there and say to yourself, oh, I am so miserable, I want to be happy, make me happy, what is, I'm going to get happy, that's not, you're not going to be happy that way, it's going to be a long road, all the how-to-do books, how do I make myself happy, I'm going to, but if you go out and you help somebody else during your difficulties, and while you're lacking and you're helping the other person, that will make you happy. Sharing with others, being there for others in different ways, that is the way to become and become a happier person. Same thing is true in marriage. Is the same thing is true. Instead of sitting and moping how happy I am, I'm not happy with my marriage, I'm not happy with this, you know, this, my spouse is this, that. And how are you going to reach happiness? By being miserable, you're not going to achieve happiness. That's not going to make you happy. There is no solution for that. The solution is if you try to make your spouse happy, then you will become happy as well. Uh, that's the key ingredient. But that means to give up misirut nefesh from yourself. That's what the idea of the number eight is to go beyond the nature, beyond what you see, beyond the simple, but go deeper. We merit the number eight when we sort of prepare ourselves not to get cut up just by what we see, but to dig deeper and to go and be able to uh, reach higher levels. Uh, talking about this, I mentioned also, it's my, it's the Rebetzin's birthday, but uh, I told him we talked about miracles and talking about difficulties and everything is relative. I mean, we have to realize that as difficulties, and again, I'm not downplaying anybody's difficulty. We do have difficulties, but again, if you measure it next to, so my father-in-law, with uh, about 11 people, how did they survive the wars of the Germans, Yemach Shimon? How did they survive? They survived it in a, in a pit. In a pit, in the ground. And how did they survive 11 people uh, in a pit? Uh, food. They used to go out at nighttime, steal from the fields, steal from the houses and Somehow they they survived. Most of them, not all, but most of them survived. At the end of the war, uh, the Russians finally came in to uh, liberate, and there was like two uh, two sides. It was the sides in where the occupation of the Nazis war, and then the other side was already the free world. Uh, basically, free world, I mean, again, relative. It was the Russians over there, but at least the Russians weren't uh, murdering the Jews at the time uh, when the Nazis were. And uh, my father-in-law told me that there was like a convoy convoy of tanks and, and, and armory and all kinds of trucks. And all what they needed to do is, because as you know, the Germans were killing Jews and others, as they were retreating, they didn't let go of their evil plans, but 
So you had to get over, if you wanted to save yourself, you had to go over to the other side. And the problem was that there was such a continuous convoy of, of uh, army vehicles that you couldn't get over on the other side. What was he going to do? And he says, and all of a sudden, like Kriyas Yamsuf, like the splitting of the sea, there was just this one moment where all the traffic stopped enough time for them to cross over to the other side, and then it resumed again. And, and that was like their own Kriyas Yamsuf over there. So these people experienced Galut. They experienced the number seven. But then eventually, you know, they came to the number eight. The number eight was the level of freedom. To them it was like the times of Mashiach because, again, everything is relative the suffering and the inhumane treatment that they had experienced, for them this was sort of leaving and like leaving Mitzrayim in those days was, was this man cherutenu. So I think also amidst Hashem, God willing, when we get rid of this corona and hopefully sooner than later it will be also our own zman cherutenu will be the time of Redemption, you know, get out of this, uh, I mean, get us out of the masks, get us out of the uh, the, the uh, different things. I'm not sure how fast that's going to happen, but in any event, that's the, that's the hope. Anyways, okay, so that's one. Anybody want to say something about here quickly? Yeah, so, uh, I mean, I was thinking how we were saying seven days is, is part of nature, but really Shabbat is, is a a space and time that's quite out of the ordinary that we create. You know, yeah, but that Shabbat, that's true, but Shabbat is still considered part of the cycle. That's why it's part of the seven-day cycle, which is, this is based on a, a commentary known as the Kleyokar who comes up with this idea. So okay. even though Shabbat is holy within the seven days itself, but it's a unit, it's called, it's the seven. It's the seven. Okay. Same thing is like you have in the Shemitah, you have the seventh year. It's a Shemitah year. It's still part of the cycle. And then the 15th year becomes the Kodesh, seven times seven. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Were the tanks Russian tanks, or were they Nazi tanks? It must tanks? have been the Russian tanks. No, these were Russian tanks, but they were going, they were rushing to the front, but it was, uh, it was still very dangerous where they were, and they needed to go. I believe that was the case. All right, let's quickly do a few more minutes we have over here. We have another, another section in this story. There was a, a very unfortunate incident uh, that took place during, the, um, during that joyous and festive time. I won't burden you read you the whole piece, but basically uh, during that festive time, two sons of Aaron... Uh, their name was Nodavaviu. They were the older sons of Aaron. So they took uh, their uh, their shovels or their their pans, and they put fire, and they put the incense. Now the incense was something which the Kohen Gadol did, which Aaron did. But they went and they did it on their own. And they brought before Hashem a strange fire that He had not commanded them. Now, this is a lot, a lot to explain this parasha. I'm not going into explain. I'll explain one point over here. 
So, what happened? Unfortunately, a tragedy took place. So a fire comes out from before Hashem. It consumes them, and they die before Hashem. So then, Moshe calls Mishael and El Tzafon, and El Tzafan. And they were, these were, these two were the children of Uziel, who's Ara's uncle. So there were four brothers, Amram, Yitzhar, Hebron, and Uziel. Those four brothers. So we know that Amram had Moshe and Aaron. They were Amram's children. And this Mishol and Tzofan were Uziel's children. So basically, Mishol and El Tzofan were first cousins with Moshe and Aaron and Miriam. Because Moshe, Aaron, and Miriam were Amram's children, Mishol and Tzofan were Uziel's children. Uziel and Amram were brothers. Okay? Uh, and he tells them, come close, take your brothers out from the Mishkan, because they came to the Mizbeach, they were there by the Mizbeach, take him away and take him outside of the camp. And he told them, take him away, don't interfere with the joy that's going on over here. Wasn't it the nephews? Wasn't it their nephews? If they were Moshe's cousins, wasn't the kids their nephews? Their kids were not their nephews. They were their first cousins when they removed. It was Mo- Moses' first cousins, Moses right? and Moses and Michelle were first cousins. And therefore, or Aaron and Aaron's sons, which were not of an Aviyu, were first cousins once removed. Right, okay. First cousin once removed, okay? First and second cousins. Uh, yep. Mishoel and El Tzafon were first cousins with Moshe and Aaron. But their sons, Aaron's sons, were their first cousin once removed, okay? And he, and he says that uh, don't interfere with the joy of what's going on at the festivities, because the inauguration of the temple removed them. Just like Rashi says, like, when you do a wedding, unfortunately, a person dies. And now it turns out that we're doing a procession for the Levaya, the funeral, and we're doing a procession for the bride to the wedding. Who goes first? So people say you remove, you have them wait and let the bride go to her wedding first, and then you take care of the Levaya, the funeral. And this was a, such a case also like saying remove, remove them from there. So there's, the Rebbe has a whole lengthy discussion over here, which 
you know, I'm not going to go into now the whole discussion. But the way the Rebbe, the way the Rebbe explains this, that over here, this was part of the, it wasn't just to bury them, but he's, he wanted to remove them, and this was part of a service as not to interfere, and, 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 and they get, they, they get a lot of credit, Mishol and El Tzofen, for doing sort of a service by removing them and not interfering with the joy that's going on. Now, why did Moshe have to call and Mishol and El Tzofen, who were Levim, who were Levites themselves, why didn't he not call just, you know, Call the Chavra Kadisha, call the Stanetskis, call the chapel, let them take him out. Why did he specifically emphasize, you take your brothers? Because this wasn't just taking them to bury, this was helping the Mishkan to by removing them. This was part of the service of keeping the Mishkan clean also. Briefly, you know, the world, we make a mishkan. There's two, we make a mishkan, we make the world a dwelling place for Hashem. In order to make the dwelling place a place for Hashem, we have to first of all keep it clean. We've got to remove the dirt, and then we've got to bring in nice furnishing. So there is surmeira, to stay away from bad, which means we can't do negative things, and then we got to do good things. Those are the positive to bring in into the Mishkan. Sometimes people, you know, you know, comes Pesach, right? People says, I'm only doing the cooking, right? But who's going to take out the garbage? You know, if you peel all the apples, you peel all the potatoes. That's part of the work. Sometimes a person might think to himself, he say, I'm only doing the important work, which means I'm being the chef, and I'm going to make the nice food. I'm not going to deal with cleaning the pots and uh, removing the, uh, the the garbage and doing the other thing. Let, let some, somebody else do it. So, in making a dwelling place for Hashem, we have the two parts. We have the two parts doing positive, good things and helping people do good things. Some people say, I only want to do the good things. I want to tell people only good things. But are you going to be there also to tell people to be cautious, don't cross the street, when the light is red, don't. Uh, you know, I find myself as a rabbi sometimes uh, in shul. You know, I like to give a nice drusha. I like to give a nice class, yes. But I don't like to tell people, you know, you have to wear a mask or else you can't come to shul. I don't like, I don't like a lot of things I don't like to tell them. But the lesson from here is that everything that is necessary, whether it's the positive 
as well as keeping people safe by putting down the rules and making the rules and keeping the rules, that is part of the service of Hashem. Mishol and El Tzofon, these are Levites. They are great people. They may think, why should we get involved with taking out the bodies? We don't want to do that. That's not work for us. We only want to, you know, bring the incense, but we don't want to deal with bodies. We're taking it out. And the answer is, this becomes part of the service of Hashem. We're trying to make this place where Hashem dwells. There is no job which is beneath us. It's all part. You can't do a half a work. You need to do the the whole thing. Um, you have to clean, and you have to make sure, you have to wash, and you have to do the right things, and only then can you spice it up and make it tasty and make it uh, food. And everything is part of the service of Hashem. So, I want to conclude this class, and again, I want to give the bracha to the Rebetzin, that she should succeed in all that she does. She does a lot of different... She does... She makes sure to teach children every single day. She teaches children in several places, in the Orthodox school, in the conservative school. She teaches her home. She does everything from the cooking to the peeling to the everything. I think that she does a little too much, but... Shem should give her the strength and the koach and the moach, the health. And I'm going to give over the floor to her now because I'm going to go to shul. And Can I make everyone... one comment? Sure. Can I just make one comment? Sure. So what you